Are any of you feeling like we are like maybe a little anxious now, seven months into COVID with varying degrees of lockdown with a very uncertain election layered on top of that? If you're listening to this live, we have one week until our November 3rd election day, but we may have a week or several weeks more until we find out the results of that presidential election. So we are bringing you a few tools to cope with election anxiety. One is a set of tips from Dr. Sue Varma, a New York-based psychiatrist you might have seen all over the Today Show, ABC, NBC, and so many more media outlets. And oh my gosh, she gives us guidelines on when and how to take in the news, permission to stop talking politics to preserve our sanity, and how to address these times of anxiety with our children. And then two, we're going to give you a treat, a meditation with Lisa Guyman, giving some self-inquiry into who am I and how you can center and ground yourself during these bonkers times. Treat yourself to some time to unplug while plugging into our podcast and feel a little better if even for those few minutes. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that eases you into uncomfortable conversations about race, racism, and how to be a little more anti-racist. We're your hosts, Sarah and me, Sasha. Sue, so glad you're here. One question I have with regards to, I don't know, everything we've got going on in life is that we have been living in this bucket of the unknown for so long since COVID started. And now we have this election that's coming up. And we don't know what is happening. I mean, for right now, we're not even told everything that the White House knows, for example, this past month with President Trump's COVID infection and that sort of stuff. So can you talk to us a little bit about the impact of knowing versus not knowing with regard to how that ties into anxiety? And also, given what that is, how can we best handle ourselves during the period between now and when the results are decided? That's such a great question. And I'm so glad that you're bringing up this idea of uncertainty because we actually have evidence from pandemics in the past that, and this was looking at, let's say, H1N1 or other pandemics, you know, 2008, 10, 11, different parts of the world. And one thing we know is when they had quarantine, they were for shorter periods of time. You know, they looked at people were developing symptoms of acute stress disorder and later on post-traumatic stress disorder from two weeks of quarantine. So I feel like, I mean, in our lifetime, in this last century, this would be the longest sort of period of uncertainty that we're dealing with. What the determining factor was between who developed acute stress or post-traumatic stress versus who didn't was precisely that having information very clearly early on, feeling as if your leaders were, so these were questionnaires that people were given. And these were the answers that the people who didn't end up getting traumatized, this is what they answered. I felt as if my leaders were transparent. I felt that I was in the know about things. I had adequate PPE. So giving people information every step of the way, you know, like I think about, let's say being on a plane that has turbulence, you know, and even if it's mild, I love the pilots and you can speak to this more, Sarah, about somebody who gives you kind of play by play of like, now we're going to experience this and now we're going to experience that. And in a very sort of calming, soothing, reassuring, trusting voice makes all the difference. So this lack of information and also being lied to, frankly, in many ways, I think it undermines our intelligence. And, and even with the CDC, when you're getting information one day, you know, it's airborne, the next day it's not, when clearly there's so many studies that showed in China in a restaurant, in the United States in a hospital, we know that, you know, there is this airborne component. So I feel like people are feeling gaslit, you know, and I think it's adding 
you know, measures to our stress. And in fact, you know, in 2016, when you they did a poll about people's anxiety, only 52% of people were saying that they were feeling anxious leading up to the election. And now it's more than 70%. So one has to ask, you know, what's changed? What are the factors involved? And I think not feeling like we have transparency adds to it. So what do we do with that feeling? Like, is it the same as every other time we feel anxiety where we make sure our basic needs are met, we're sleeping as best we can, and we're eating and exercising and that sort of stuff? Or is there anything more we can do in the meanwhile? You know, I would say like whatever people are able to do in their own community with getting people together and saying like, can you make your voice heard? Can you vote? Like really that's the only, I think, one grounding or actionable step that can be taken. And yes, self-care is a huge part of that, you know, and there's something interesting to be said about this, like delicate balance between knowing what you need to know and not more than that, you know? So like, if that means not being plugged in, you know, 24 seven, because after a while, it's not the news, it's the same. Like, it's the same thing. There's something bad happening somewhere. And I think it's very toxic for our mental health to be plugged in. So maybe making a decision that you listen to the news, for example, whatever your appetite might be twice a day, you know, maybe I would say though, not first thing in the morning and not the last thing at night. It's not how I want to start my day. I think most of us, the first thing we do, even before we greet, you know, partners, spouses, family members, if we live with any, we look at our phone. And sometimes it's something we do even before we use the bathroom in the morning, even before we get out of bed. And we take our news in bed for a lot of people, right? Before going to bed or before getting out of bed. And I think that really sets a bad tone because number one, you start to associate it with safe spaces and your bedroom should absolutely be that safe space. And it definitely impacts our sleep hygiene. So if you're reading about all the disasters in the world right before you go to bed, clearly it's going to interfere. And a lot of people are telling me about insomnia and they have been for months. And actually we know that the rate of benzodiazepine prescriptions have increased anywhere from 10 to 34% because of sleep. And that's a whole separate issue in itself and how that you know contribute to misuse and psychological dependence and addiction. But the point is that 70% of people are feeling stress related to the election and all sorts of other things, unemployment and illness and social isolation. So we're going through a lot. And I would say limiting the news intake and specifically when it comes to at which times of day. So give yourself an opportunity to have a morning routine that feels like a normal life in whatever capacity you can. And I tell people to try to engage if they have an outdoor space, if they have the luxury of getting an outdoor heater to be able to get morning sunlight. I think that's so key, especially as we're going into the colder months. So it just so happens that election time also coincides with when our clocks are going to go back. We're going to have less exposure to daytime sunlight. And we have this dread of not only what the results will be, but also going into the colder months where we're not going to be able to interact with people. And so the best thing that you can do overall is be, I think, effective and productive, actionable with the voting. And at the same time, a little bit of healthy detachment might be necessary here. I love that you said that because I feel like there's a lot of people who want to help change other people's minds and are feeling like they're hitting their head against a brick wall. And it almost feels like you're giving people permission to just back off. Like right now, if you can't convert people, it's okay to preserve your own sanity first, right? And it's not about converting others. It's about making sure that you are being authentic for your concerns and then being able to let go and let people make their own decisions at the end of the day. So thanks for that. One last question. How do we, and for those who have children or young people in their lives, how do we address this time with our children, especially for those who are old enough to understand what's at stake? Like, how do we support their anxiety about what's to come about their future? 
You know, what's so interesting is that more and more people are getting their news from social media these days, and then they're getting them from people that share similar values for the most part with them. So it's interesting how a lot of people aren't going to be exposing themselves to different points of views and rather gravitating towards views that already resonate with them. And it's kind of like this confirmatory bias that when you believe something, you see more and more and more of the things that already confirm what you already believe. And so the opportunity for sort of growth and learning just isn't there. And given that everything is so divisive right now, you know, I was talking about the psychology of mask wearing, and you could, you know, pretty much predict what states based on political, you know, sort of affiliation. So there is this feeling of feeling dismissed and invalidated. So part of it is when somebody presents a point of view that seems so, you know, antithetical to everything you know, and believe, and it could be on both sides, it can really divide friendships. You know, this is what I'm hearing, like, I've had patients that said that like they met up with friends and maybe went on a trip this summer with them and that by the end of it, the friendship was broken because somehow the conversation meandered into something political and they had always known that they had opposing points of views, but there was never a more polarized time to, you know, to experience this and all sorts of things came up and, you know, whether it be socioeconomic, about race, and it can really tear up friendships and families. But I would say, if you're able to see, you know, ask yourself, number one, like, who is this person that's giving me this information? What relevance does it have to the greater sort of, you know, trajectory of my life? Is it a long term relationship that I value and I need to maintain? And if so, then what safeguards and measures am I going to put in place to preserve those relationships? And recognizing that their boundaries, you know, in 2016, I had very many similar conversations about Thanksgiving coming up and how are we going to see family? You know, we're not going to be seeing as many people. But back then, it was about how are we going to be dealing with the holidays and family members that are completely opposite pages. And I would say, for me personally, completely limit those conversations because they're mostly not going to lead to any good. Like we go in thinking that we can inspire change and maybe shed light. And I think you can do, I would say, limit the number of conversations you have with polarized conversations with people whom you actually want to maintain a relationship with. And then if you're going to speak about it, speak in the first person and talk about your personal belief and maybe something sharing a vulnerable story. If you really are trying to help somebody, you know, so I know people, and this is not necessarily political beliefs, but since it's so tied in, you know, I've had, you know, young adult patients in their, you know, twenties and thirties, and they were talking to their parents who were not wearing masks and socializing. And they're like, I don't get it. Like, what do they not understand about the situation? And I want them to be safe and they're more at risk, especially. And this could go in any direction in terms of age and, you know, sharing it from the point of view that like, I love you. I care about you. I don't want to lose you. You know, is this something you would consider and then let go, you know, if a person can't wrap their head around it and this could really be applied to anything, but if it's possible to share in the first person, talk about your own vulnerability, your own emotions. And then I would say, if you need to, for a period of time around the election, you know, if you find that you can't have productive conversations with the person, maybe don't have any at all. And I think that this is such a delicate, fragile time that you have to preserve your sanity and your mental health in whatever way possible. And even though I'm a huge believer in maintaining social support as a way to protect your mental health, I also recognize that sometimes the toxicity in these conversations supersedes that, you know, the need to preserve it. So I think you have to be take things on a case by case basis. I don't believe in avoiding people endlessly, or breaking a relationship. But if you feel like you can't have one a productive conversation that somehow doesn't 
turn to something really negative. I know a lot of people whose parents believe, you know, have different points of views. And it's really brought to light this last year, the differences, you know, in the relationships and the way we live our life, because it never informed our behavior so much. And it was so sort of visible what your belief system was. Um, This is definitely something I needed to hear because I'm definitely one of those news readers. And I loved what you said about the sames, right? Because it is just coming at us and it's repeated. So I'm going to take some of those tips to heart for sure. You know, along with the news and reading the news and talking about the news and analyzing all the things that happen with the news, we get a lot of comments, you know, in our lives between either social media use, and it could be, you know, from people we don't know on social media, let's say, or even with our loved ones, or, you know, in an argument or a discussion who have different views. So what is a productive way to address those types of comments that come at us during this time, especially when we're feeling so anxious and unsettled about what's going on? You know, depending on the kid and what they're going through, I think it's so important as a parent that the focus should be, again, on preserving their mental health and sense of safety at any cost. And, you know, when it comes to anxiety treatment, typically we tell people, adults, not necessarily young folks, but, you know, we tell people who have anxiety to not engage in too much reassurance seeking behavior, you know? So like if somebody constantly has to ask their partner or friends, like, is it going to be okay? Is everything going to be okay? And you want in any other situation, an adult to be able to feel a certain amount of anxiety and to be able to tolerate it. And that's okay, because it's considered like a form of desensitization or exposure therapy, you know, like someone is afraid of heights, you want them to go to higher and higher levels with the therapist or a trusted person and for their anxiety to normalize in those situations. And I say a certain amount of anxiety is healthy, but because what we're going through is of astronomical proportions, that the level of uncertainty where we don't know, we're like in this holding pattern of, okay, so like now the numbers have gone up of cases again in schools. Many of them have shut down again if they had reopened. For young people, you know, depending on the age, their peers at a certain point as teenagers and young adults really are the focus of their life and social circle and less so the parents as they get older. And for them to not be able to get together in all the ways is a severe loss. I think it's a loss for all of us. And it's a loss, especially for young people whose brain is still very much developing. So I would say for the younger population, you want to normalize and reassure the heck out of everything that they're going through and to say, you are right, I'm so sorry. And even if it means projecting confidence that you don't necessarily have, that's okay. Because they also look to their parents to just give them a sense of what's going on in the world. And I don't know if this is something I had shared with you when we spoke last time, but when they look at kids and scary movies, like kids end up getting more frightened when they watch the scary movies with their parents because of their parents' reaction. So your kids are going to be turning to you. And if you're like, nope, everything's fine. And they're like, but this, but that. And you're like, yes, you're right. It's not the same, but we're going to work through this. These are our plans. We can do this. You know, if it's safe and it makes sense. And if you're in a pod with other families, if you can continue meeting outdoors as much as possible so that their life feels somewhat regular and normal and that there are opportunities for fun and silliness and fun projects. But I would just say, and sleep has to be huge. They have to be able to sleep. And all of, you know, the four M's of mental health, movement, mindfulness, mastery, meaningful engagement, giving them 10 minutes for each of them. But 
if I had to summarize one word, I would just say reassurance is what young people need. And then wherever they can be politically active, if they're in their community, can't vote yet, but whatever it is that they're able to do or volunteer in whatever way they can. You know, if altruism, social support, giving back, those are all things that improve the receiver, but the giver as well. What else do we need to think about right now? So, you know, I would just say what we need more than anything in the society to be able to heal and recover is safe space for conversation and to be able to share your feelings. There's this movement now, which we're recognizing called toxic positivity, and it's positivity at any cost. And I don't believe in that. And I think that while it's really important and a big believe in the power of positive thinking, I think that the toxic positivity are well-intentioned people who keep saying everything will be fine. That ends up shutting the conversation down. So when somebody is telling you, I'm not fine, things are not going good in my life, you should not say to them, but look on the bright side. That's dangerous. You want to be able to ask questions, empathize, open-ended, validate, listen to them. People's loneliness and sense of isolation only increases when they don't have people to talk to. You don't have to have a lot of people, just be one or two. So I think that's really important that we only think of like therapy as a safe space, but our friendships, if there's like a social understanding and a contract to say, I'm going to call you. And the other thing I would say is, I'm going to call you when I need you. The other thing I would say is minimize the negativity. So even though I'm saying it's 100% okay and you should share, because sharing the negative emotions are part of your wide range of normal human experience, I would also say just limiting it to sort of 10 or 15 minutes. And beyond that, then it takes on a life of its own and rumination and can turn into sort of depression if that's all the focus is on. And distractions, self-soothing, these are all really key things. I think one of the things that we lost in the pandemic is the distractions that were healthy. So being able to go outside, you know, go to dinner, go to a show, go to a movie in order to sort of escape our problems, literally and physically, there's really no place to escape it. And the ability to be in nature, I think is huge as much as possible, that it really, you know, sort of lowers our stress level in a lot of ways. Green spaces, a lot of studies have shown have improved people's mood. Even if you're sitting in a hospital bed and you're looking out onto another buildings, they put like sort of gardens or even just the color green was enough. Green, blue, calming, soothing. If you can be near water, if you can take a bath, some people are grossed out by bats in their tub. But if you can clean your tub, if you're lucky enough to have one and sit in it, it's extremely therapeutic. Meditation. So there's so many ways to calm your nervous system. I think we're on fight or flight, hypervigilance mode, soothing, calming, grounding, reassuring. These are the words that I'm thinking of and creating safe spaces where people can say, and then don't either compare your loss or one up them. And I think the biggest thing that's missed so often is that people feel as if they need to justify their pain. They feel as if they need to say to somebody, I deserve to be miserable. And it's not a competition. This is not a pain hierarchy of where's your pain compared to mine? And are you justified to feel bad? You know, and something like if you shared a death in your family and somebody's like, oh, well, that person was like old anyway, and they were suffering and now they're out of stuff trying to make someone look on the right side if they don't want to at that moment. Of course, we all have friends who are only negative, And after a while, we might feel or, or people in our life that are only skewed in the negative direction. And that's a whole separate conversation. To them, we can guide them in the right direction and maybe offer them professional, you know, counseling to say, it sounds like we've talked a lot about this and we're, you know, this is still very much weighing on you. Would you ever consider talking to somebody about it? But, you know, for the most part, otherwise, we want to be able to have a healthy balance between being able to express negative and positive emotions. So critical to point out that social network and making sure that we can really just bring our whole selves to that conversation. I mean, Misasha is like my endless supporter in all things, and she has heard the ups and downs. And I think it just having to or being able to identify your trusted friends where you can 
vent. You can really say, look, I'm struggling, even though I don't know why, because often just getting that out of your chest or identifying that feeling makes it feel like, oh, actually I named you and now I can move on. So that's really helpful. And the emotional experience, you know, like that's the thing is like sometimes when you're talking to somebody who it feels like they might be sort of operating, even no matter how intelligent they are, emotionally, they're operating on a very concrete level. And you're saying this happened to me and therefore I feel really sad. And they're like, but that thing that happened to you, that's not that bad. And I get so upset, even in my personal life, when I have those conversations and I'm like, I'm not asking number one for a solution to my problem, right? My problem is the pain that I'm feeling. It's not the incident because I'm smart enough to be able to take care of the incident, you know, or maybe if I need help, I will ask, how do you think I can manage this situation better? But what I want to be able to connect with, I think women, especially in our conversations, we connect over our emotions and our feelings. And we want someone to be like, oh my God, that's so, I'm sorry that you feel that way. Because for us, our feelings are our experience. You know, it is the incident, the trigger that led to it, but then it creates an emotional experience that is something that needs to be discussed in and of itself. And I think a lot of people miss that and they look at the trigger and then they sort of rate it. And then they, in their mind, decide, whether you're justified or not to feel the feeling and they've decided and calculated, you know, that trigger really doesn't warrant that kind of a reaction, then they've just written you off and the conversation is done. And I see that all the time amongst parent and child to friends, spouses, and it can be really damaging. And that creates loneliness in relationships. That's the saddest part is that when you actually have people around you who don't understand your emotional experience and you feel as if you need to really, and that's why I see in a lot of my sort of like young adult patients whose parents were very invalidating they go to great lanes to make things, you know, sometimes the parent will be like, why are you so dramatic? Why does everything have to be so big? And they're like, but I can't seem to get your attention when things are of lower caliber, you know, lower level. So I think it's really important for all of us to really validate the emotional experience as well for another person. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Hi, I'm Lisa Guyman, and I'm going to be guiding you here through a meditation I have been teaching and practicing meditation for over 20 years. I think most of us have experienced when we do meditate that we feel better. When we feel better, we are actually able to be more productive, more effective, and have more of a positive impact on those around us and the world. In this meditation today, there's going to be a process of self-inquiry. When I ask certain questions in this meditation, simply allow whatever comes into your consciousness. So you may have an image, words, concepts that arise, and there's no need to analyze or filter. There's no right answer. So just allow whatever it is to come into your consciousness. And I'll talk more about the value of this self-inquiry process at the end of the meditation. And each time you listen, it will be a different experience. So it's not about trying to have a certain answer in the future when you do this practice. It's always about each time just being very innocent with the practice and allowing whatever to show up to show up. And you can learn more about my practice and my workshops at my website, lisagaiman.com or journeyintomeditation.com will take you there as well. And for this meditation, you can either be sitting or lying down, closing your eyes and checking in. 
and find a word or phrase or maybe an image that represents how you feel right now. And note that in your mind. And know that today you may relax very quickly or you may relax more slowly. So giving yourself permission to have whatever your experience is. And also giving yourself permission to move from that thinking, doing, active mind to feeling and sensing. And become aware of your breathing, not needing to change it in any way. Just simply observing your breathing. And perhaps noticing that sense of expansion on the inhale. And that sense of release, relaxation, letting go on the exhale. You may even notice a coolness on the inhale or a warmth on the exhale. With your eyes closed, continuing to allow your breathing to flow naturally. And with each inhale, move your gaze upwards towards your eyebrow center, that midpoint between your eyebrows. And on the exhale, return your eyes to their natural position. Up to the eyebrow center on the inhale. And back down on the exhale. Focusing on having the eyes follow the breath. And now allow your eyes to rest comfortably in their natural position and shift your attention to your senses. Noticing the air on your skin. And tuning into the space that fills the room you're in.
Noticing where in your body you can relax a little bit more. In particular, relaxing your eyes, relaxing your jaw, releasing any expression on your face. and inviting the relaxation to flow throughout your body. And releasing the idea that you need to have any particular experience. Simply allowing the unfolding of your experience. And ask yourself the question, Who am I? Allow your response to be fluid and changing like water. Who am I? Who am I? And now asking yourself the question, what do I want? What do I want? And how will I feel when I accomplish that or get that or arrive there? How can I serve? How can I serve? Drifting away from the questions bringing your awareness to your heart center and letting these words resonate in your heart. May I be happy. May I be healthy. 
May I be an instrument of peace. May I be happy. May I be healthy. May I be an instrument of peace. Thinking of your loved ones. May you be happy. May you be healthy. May you be an instrument of peace. May you be happy. May you be healthy. May you be an instrument of peace. May there be an uprising of love and light for this whole world. May there be an amplification of healing and light for the whole universe, this amazing infinite universe. Bringing your awareness back to your senses and becoming aware of the air on your skin. The movement of your breath. And this time, allowing your breath to deepen. And then when you're ready, opening your eyes. Namaste. As part of the meditation, I invited you to self-inquiry and invited you to respond first to the question, who am I? The reason it's helpful to ask the question, who am I, is that we can become overly identified with the roles we play. And when we become overly identified, this can create a great deal of stress. And as you were answering that question, you may have noticed it's very natural to first respond with your name or maybe what you do or something about your 
relationships, you know, that you are a a daughter or son, brother or sister, husband or wife, mother or father, and, you know, a, uh, you may come up with your career and so forth. Some aspects of your identity will naturally come into your consciousness. And as you keep exploring this question, who am I, you may have noticed that instead of the biographical data that was maybe initially coming up, then you start to identify more with your beliefs and your life mission or your your orientation, your spirituality, and so forth. And as you go deeper still in this med- in meditation you just experienced or in subsequent listens, you may find yourself arriving more at a sense of stillness or pure being, like, who am I? I am. So without all of the the ideas floating around about identity and you just tune into your pure sense of self, this can create a great deal more freedom from some of the stressors of daily life and help you connect more with your spiritual, your soul center. So doing this practice can help you connect to that part of you that is senses or feels at some level that you are already whole and complete and that at some deep level all is well. This doesn't mean that you suddenly become oblivious to the world and aren't taking meaningful action, but that you're able to do it more from a state of presence and being and even joy. For the self-inquiry that involved the question, what do I want? This can be a helpful question to ask as well for one to tune into and ask ourselves what we do want. Sometimes we can get so busy living that we forget to think about that and to let that guide our lives. And the other benefit of asking this question is when you go deeper into what you want, often what we are seeking is the feeling state, how we think we'll feel in that new state, having achieved what we want. And the final question was, how can I serve? And this is helping you see, connect with your gifts, what you want to give, how you want to contribute. Because when we focus on what we can give and how we can be engaged, we contribute more and we experience greater happiness. Thank you for practicing meditation with me today. Namaste.